morning and welcome to Rising. Well, we've got a great show for you all today. And plus, we're in for a treat because we have the great Alimia Lauren back in studio with us to kick off the week. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Robbie, and good morning, everybody. Our panel will weigh in on some new inflation polling and what the White House is saying about a pending recession. Plus, Liz Wolf is back with some new reporting on monkeypox. But first, by now, you've all seen this. Well, that was President Biden taking a spill during a bike ride in his home state of Delaware during a so he was riding a bike in Rehoboth Beach uh, over the weekend. You can see the fall here uh, from a couple different angles. And uh, yeah, it was definitely he got his foot caught in that little thing on his bike. So but even former President Trump has expressed that he hopes Biden was OK and wished him a quick recovery during his American Freedom Tour in Tennessee on Saturday. Biden memes have flooded the Internet, of course, and Trump unsurprisingly couldn't help himself from jumping on that trend. So he posted this on his Truth Social app over the weekend. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's fine. It was all in good fun, though. Biden's fall was minimal, as you can see. He was back up and posing with people at the scene following his viral spill. Reporters got Biden's reaction to the incident as the president left church Sunday. Let's watch. Mr. President, how are you feeling? How are you feeling, sir? Good. There you go. <laughs> what did Jill say, Mr. President? So I don't know how people are reacting to this. I, I, I didn't look. I tried to get off social media every now and then. But it didn't look very much uh, online for what people were saying. So I don't know if this has kicked off another round of Biden's old. too old or he's lost it. On, and so I, I do think Biden is too <laughs> old. And there is some uh, he communicates so much more poorly than he used to. I don't, so I don't know about it, any of that, but I will say I don't think this is an example I because agree. anyone can get their foot caught. If you look, like it's clear he just gets his foot caught. Yeah, I fall, so we were talking before the show about all the times I've fallen while exercising. Right. I don't think I'm too old to run for president. I never will, but. I think Biden is, in fact, a rapidly aging senior citizen, and I do think we should probably err away from having rapidly aging senior citizens as our presidents. However, I'm on your side with this one, too. I don't think this was evidence of his age or any, yeah. like, lack of wherewithal. I think, you know, he took a little spill, and not for nothing, he bounced back pretty quickly. Bounced right back. We're glad he's in fine shape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're laughing. That was you. That was ah, Ole. Okay, that but that, that was the angle. Like, it, it, I wasn't ready for the angle. I was a, I was a pretty comedic angle, Rob. Yeah. No, I've got, I was uh, I, in college. I was running once and I like jumped a little gate. I got my foot caught on the gate as I went over it. I went face first in the concrete and uh, and haven't learned. I haven't have, learned from your mistakes. No, I will. You, you know, I, I'm scooting all the time. Getting, <laughs> falling off the scooter. Maybe a few times. Um, Any. All right. We're, ta we're taking this story lightly, but we're not taking inflation lightly. Inflation and gas prices. Uh, so Biden has expressed optimism in the face of these challenges. Some say that it makes the president seem out of touch with voters who are bearing the brunt of the price hikes, the price increases. Meanwhile, Democrats are very frustrated over the administration's inability to get much done other than ponder about doing something, including issues like student loan forgiveness, something Biden obviously campaigned on. And over at The Atlantic, author Ronald Brownstein whipped up another pipe dream for Democrats, this time in the form of California Governor Gavin Newsom swooping in to save the Democratic Party from the culture wars. 
nobody can help themselves with this kind of wish casting. Though, oh, what if somebody else ran for president? What if, like, this is the pundit's favorite game? It's just stupid because Biden, uh, uh, Biden is in extraordinarily likely to run again. Yeah, he's probably. Right. And if not, he would he would have to just resign. If he's not in good enough shape to run for reelection then he should just resign, and then Kamala Harris is going to be the president. So the, the, the odds that it's, any, it's going to be Biden, and right. in the extraordinarily unlikely circumstance where he has some extreme health reason or something, then it's going to be Kamala Harris. So we don't need to talk about Newsom or anyone else. I would be okay with us throwing out possible other Democrats to run, or at least like trying to build some kind of moment, momentum mm-hmm. or excitement around the possibility of someone else, because I am someone But just that... to like push him left, right? Not to actually... Well, I don't necessarily think Biden should run again. I'm not convinced that he could win. Um, but I'll say this, I would prefer, if they're going to throw out somebody, I would prefer it not people that be people like Gavin Newsom who've already said very clearly that they're mm-hmm. not going to run. He said he's not going to get in the way of, you know, uh, Kamala. He said if Kamala were to do that, and he, uh, he, it's his understanding that Biden is going to run again. So, Do you think Gavin Newsom, does he have an appeal um, uh, abroad? Who no. likes Gavin Newsom? I don't find him appealing at all. I, I know him, he obviously he's not my governor, I don't live in California, yeah. but I mostly know him for being incredibly extreme on COVID restrictions that he himself didn't follow. Isn't that what his national profile is? I don't know if that's his national profile. I think his national profile is that of, you know, California being a, a pretty liberal, a pretty liberal, outspoken um, Democrat. And I think there, there is some truth that that is probably liked. And if he were, if there were a world where he was really going to run for president, I think now would be a good time to say it and start building his profile and momentum and people talking about him. But that being said, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think that we're going to start talking about him or see this fan base kind of blow up. Um, but if it, if it were the case, I would be, I would be okay with a Newsom, but I just don't think it's this world. I'm not open to so I, it's not, yeah, it's not going to happen. I don't think there's any evidence that he would be more popular than Biden. Uh, I mean, so Biden is obviously not as popular as he yeah. used to be, but there's no one, there's no one to replace him who, who commands, uh, uh, unless we're talking outside the political sphere. If, if some Democrats need like a celebrity type person to come out of honest. nowhere who has massive name recognition, uh, Matthew McConaughey, The Rock. So I, I'm not saying they would no. be good at politics no or makes any that. sense, but no more of that. Just from a purely political, yes. strategic perspective. I agree. I think in a different world, if if we were looking um, this were further into the future and not now, I think somebody. I know you're not going to like it when I say Robbie, but I think AOC is somebody with like you know mm-hmm. the name recognition and national um, um, profile, somebody that people could at least get excited about. Obviously, it would be. A lot of people would not like it, but yeah. there were a lot of far people. left people would get excited. We would yeah. love it. We would love <laughs> it. So I, I do think, um, unfortunately, I don't really see anybody else as jumping out as somebody that Dems could put there. Which is why I think if there were a world where they really didn't want Biden to run again and get somebody, it would be a good time now to start rallying around a figure like make us know them. I didn't always know DeSantis, but I know him now because mm-hmm. the Republicans made sure. So I'm sure the same thing could be done with a Newsom or someone else. I just don't think they're going to do it. You're right. The conservative media is building DeSantis yes. as. As a well, as an alternative, obviously to Biden, but to Trump, exactly, uh, because exactly. they don't want, and and he has, uh, DeSantis actually does have. Finally, the Trump fever is breaking a little bit yeah. on the right. It, it had gone on for so long that you started to think it was terminal and was never <laughs> going to break. But now, DeSantis is, as far as I can tell, about as popular a figure, if not maybe a little bit more popular I among think. Republicans, and obviously, you know, the the very Trump like. Uh, 
Trump-loving base, yeah. if they're okay with DeSantis too, he's going to win and in a, that's in a what I'm head worried head about because Republican media likes him so much better. And I'm really worried that maybe um, liberal media isn't doing enough to point out uh, the danger that is DeSantis, because I think what's going to happen or what could happen is DeSantis is obviously extremely popular around Republicans, but I don't know if liberals are not paying as much attention to all the different politicians and actors are aware that DeSantis has this kind of fire and, you know, support that he has. And what I wouldn't want to happen is see because there's not a Trump that the voter turnout, people don't have the same kind of urgency to get rid of a Trump. They're not thinking about a DeSantis and he just whooshes in. DeSantis has been the subject of some uh, plenty of what I think is legitimate criticism from the media, but also some ridiculous criticism that was not very good. He, he got, uh, I remember this, um, it was a 60 Minutes hit piece on him about how there was something corrupt about which uh, the, uh, uh, Pharmacies had gotten the vaccines, and it, it, it was a total nothing burger. It was so ridiculous. There's been a couple things like that that uh, that are actually it's the kind of hit piece you want to be the subject of, yeah. because then it makes your criticism because it, more it, it detracts from the legitimate compl- cl- yeah. uh, legitimate claims. I think they should probably spend a lot more time. Uh, criticizing DeSantis on things like what's happening with the LGBT, you know, Q issues, um, things happening. I I would stay away from the COVID stuff because I think pretty, pretty. We're all over it. I think a lot of people are over it on yeah. both sides. Well, I'm over it. <laughs> well, I've been over it since like day two. But, right. Exactly. But you're so, you're getting over it. So we're you're, that shows there's some. You're right that it's across I, the spectrum. I think people, people are do very, not want to live under COVID tyranny anymore. I've noticed people are just not really interested in it as a topic yeah. anymore as much across uh, both aisles. Yeah. Um, so I think they should focus on what are his like his social his social issues his social views because not for nothing social issues are half the reason why people run out to get rid of the Trump. So for the same reason I think they should be focusing on that with DeSantis. Yeah, conservative conservative overreach on that kind of stuff might exactly. be, might bring Democrats back into the fold. All right, we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week on Thursday, the White House created a new task force to combat online harassment, abuse, and threats of sexual violence. The initiative was unveiled by Vice President Kamala Harris, who gave little indication that she understands the difference between preventing violence and deterring harassment, the latter of which is actually outside the government's purview in many cases. But, quote, for far too many people, the Internet is a place of fear, said Harris. This affects all of us if it affects any one of us. Let's watch. Understanding this affects all of us if it affects any one of us. And we, therefore, all of us, have a responsibility to stand together, to support those who have gone through this, but to also recognize they shouldn't have to be alone fighting on this issue. So that's the spirit with which we convene today and the spirit with which we are doing this work. Online harassment is indeed a frustrating and pervasive problem. But contrary to the White House's framing that harassers primarily target women and minorities, people of all backgrounds contend with it if they spend, well, any significant amount of time online. A Pew survey from 2017 found that 44% of men said they had experienced online harassment compared with actually just 37% of women. Quote, it's true that women who have been targets of online abuse were more than twice as likely as men to describe their last such experience as extremely or very upsetting. That's 35 percent versus 16 percent, according to Kathy Young, who's a contributor to Reason Magazine, where I also write, and she wrote that back in 2017. But interestingly, according to Kathy Young, there was no gender gap in actual negative effects of online harassment. 
be it mental stress, problems with friends and family, romantic problems, reputational damage, or trouble at work, end quote. So in her remarks, however, Harris focused on the harm to specific groups. She said one in three women under the age of 35 report being sexually harassed online. Over half of the LGBTQ plus people in our country are survivors of severe harassment. Nearly one in four Asian Americans report being called an offensive name, usually motivated by racism. No one should have to endure abuse just because they are trying to participate in society. That was what Harris said. And look, it would certainly be better if the Internet and social media in particular, was a friendlier virtual place. It can get nasty out there. I've seen it. I've suffered it too. But the federal government has no mandate to criminalize harassment, which in many cases it constitutes protected speech under the First Amendment. While it has become trendy to refer to any sustained wave of negative online feedback as harassment, well, look, sometimes criticism is partly or wholly deserved, as was the case with Department of Homeland Security disinformation czar Nina Jankowitz, whose ouster was sympathetically covered by the Washington Post and framed as the result of harassment. In any case, it falls to social media companies to craft rules that deal with and define harassment. These rules often fail to strike a good balance between allowing open discussion of controversial topics and deterring nastiness, but there's little reason to think a missive from the White House will improve matters. On the contrary, the federal government's previous attempts to wrangle social media platforms have prompted the companies to adopt laughably bad policies that we've criticized on this show all the time. By asking Facebook and other sites to prohibit misinformation and disinformation, the Biden administration has indirectly worked to outlaw legitimate dissenting opinions relating to COVID-19. For months, any open acknowledgement of the lab leak theory was forbidden on Facebook. The White House fact sheet announcing this online harassment task force makes two references to disinformation, suggesting that it falls under the broad category of online abuse and explicitly posits that the government should come up with strategies to stop it. The press release is careful to note that these strategies will take the form of recommendations rather than commands. But given that social media companies are constantly under siege by regulation-happy members of Congress in both parties, that will they face tremendous pressure to comply with whatever the administration proposes. Several Twitter users, for instance, have already sued the Department of Health and Human Services, arguing that previous guidance from the secretary and the Surgeon General caused the site to take down their accounts. Quote, by instrumentalizing tech companies, including Twitter, through pressure, coercion, and threats to censor viewpoints that the federal government has deemed misinformation, the Surgeon General has turned Twitter censorship into state action. That's according to the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a legal advocacy group that is representing those banned Twitter users. So like the disinformation board that preceded it, the White House's new task force seems incredibly misguided. At the very least, its mission should be narrowed to focus on speech that does in some cases fall outside of First Amendment protection. Let's say actual threats of violence, revenge porn, things like that. Beware attempts by the government to crack down on so-called harassment and misinformation because far too often government figures are actually referring to legitimate criticism of the government and constitutionally protected speech. They're not trying to protect you. They're trying to prevent you from talking back to them. So, you know, this was another one of those kind of, oh, disinformation, online harassment. We got to do something about it. We being the government. 
And these people are just always so incautious about then when we're actually talking, well, what speech are we talking about? Right. So often it's like, oh, you're harassing me if you're criticizing me at all. There's a lot of that in the media. We've talked a lot on the show about how the Washington Post actually insti as institutionally is really on board with this whole idea that, you know, if anyone in the media gets attacked, this is this right wing harassment campaign. Right. Right. But then they're they're criticizing people. They're sicking harassment, un unintentional or not. And it's like, well, why is that? Why is it accountability when you do it, but it's harassment when it gets done to you? So listen, I want to say I recognize that the internet is a nasty place. I think nasty. primarily for people with larger platforms, which is why I think this is probably not motivated by a desire to uh, protect the average person in society. I think the people most experiencing harassment are people with public platforms or public figures or government officials. You see, right? So I exactly. am, I am incredibly suspicious of the motivations and how they would actually go about regulating it. And I do want to say in the same way, I don't think, um, you know, negative and legitimately earned criticism and people's, you know, ability to share in that open discourse should automatically rise to harassment in the same vein. I want to say it shouldn't automatically rise to cancel culture, which is often what we see the right say that they're being canceled when they get negative criticism. So I want to throw it out there. Um, so I actually do agree with you, but for different reasons, not because I think, you know, uh, of the regulation of free speech or that we can't criminalize harassment. It's in fact because harassment's already criminalized. Like if you someone harasses true. if it's someone true. harasses Some, you on the internet, you right. can't I have I represented a million aggravated harassment yeah. uh, claims because someone said something to you on the internet, they repeatedly sent you texts and calls. But I don't think that the federal government has any business getting involved in this Right. particular arena of life. I think it's given the federal government too much reach, too much power. Um, and especially, I just don't trust them to regulate, to regulate so it correctly. So here's a question for you. In order to rise to the level of harassment where, it, uh, where it's actually illegal and yeah. some action can be taken, what kinds of uh, uh, behaviors do the users have to per behave in social media for to get because it, it's not just like anyone like criticizes right. you. it's right if you're constantly sending think, you messages that's or what harassment messages, is that kind of stuff i think right. harassment is somebody intentionally setting a course of conduct repeatedly first of all i think it has to be repeated i don't mm -hmm. think it's just somebody insulted you to one time they occasionally say a hair in their thing but i think if somebody has accounts or making multiple accounts you block them you report the right. tweet or whatever it is and they're harassing you repeatedly creating accounts or starting some kind of online campaign against you i think that's different i think that could rise to the level of harassment and i think we already have a mechanism in right. place to deal with that. I don't think the federal government needs to create this task force. Right. And if, if, as, or if they're proposing like violence against you or if they're doxing or sharing your information, if they're just exactly. saying you're a garbage person and, you know, you should lose your job as a reporter. Right. Or something, right. Which is ridiculous. We can all say we that. We all get madness, to say that. Yeah. But I don't think it should rise. I don't think it should rise to yeah. harassment. I, really I first noticed it. it and I, I think a lot of our viewers did. Uh, not, not I first noticed it, but it was uh, certainly I, I think some of the kinds of people who watch our show saw it, uh, how the sort of harassment framing was used to try to delegitimize Bernie Sanders and his supporters. They were uh, accused of being like uniquely vicious online. That is I'm true. looking, I'm like, yeah, there's some vicious people online, but are they any more vicious than the supporters of any other political campaign I did ever? Actually, I don't know about that. I did actually disagree with that. I, I definitely feel like... I remember there being a large effort or initiative to portray Bernie Sanders himself and Bernie Sanders supporters as misogynists and attacking, you know, women yeah. and other. I didn't really see that. I didn't right. really quite think that is. That's not to diminish. If anybody has any specific examples, don't tweet them at me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure some of his supporters were misogynistic, just like some supporters of Hillary Clinton and some supporters of Donald Trump and some supporters of every other political candidate right. that has attracted a large following at all. Right. right. I'm just like, what are they going to determine as harassment? I also think it's, to me, the most important note is I don't think anybody acts for this. In the course of when mm -hmm. Democrats are already in trouble <laughs> or getting criticized heavily for not doing enough or not doing their campaign promises, 
why are you, what's, who's this initiative for? I don't exactly. think. Exactly. They, they mistake their base for like a handful of blue check mark progressive yes. people who are really concerned about the, or themselves. 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 Yes. I, they are also the blue check mark yeah. people online yep. that are getting har harassed, which yeah. is criticized. So, I mean, I encourage them to use their block and mute function like I do. <laughs> That's right. Block and mute. Yes. All right. I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Alimia. Alimi, what's on your radar? New York City's mayor and former NYPD officer Eric Adams began his term in January 2022, and under the guise of being tough on crime, he initiated what can only be described as a war on the homeless. He added 1,000 more cops to the New York City subways to remove homeless New Yorkers and force them back onto the street. Once successfully forced back onto the street, he then began tearing down the encampments they live in all over the city, throwing them out with all their belongings, with absolutely no regard to placing them in housing, even proposing a $615 million budget cut to the Department of Homeless Services, and even arresting both homeless people and advocates. He did this all while advocating for a $200 million budget increase and hiring increases to the NYPD's already $10.4 billion and 35,000 officers and failing to address multiple shootings by NYPD officers and more than 20 deaths at Rikers in the last year. Now, to make matters worse, with the newest $101 billion budget finalized, Eric Adams has failed to deliver on several campaign promises and made whopping budget cuts to housing, education, and parks. It's not a coincidence that New York City has a serious problem with homelessness. New York City is quite literally one of the most expensive cities to live in on Earth. People end up homeless in New York City because the cost of living is astronomical. Reportedly, there are more than 80,000 homeless New Yorkers. Nearly one in every 106 New Yorkers is homeless. As of March 2022, there were 48,524 homeless people in New York City's shelter system, including 15,087 homeless children. According to the New York Times, the average rent of an apartment in Manhattan is $4,975 a month, a 22% increase from the year before. And in Brooklyn, the average rent is 3,744, a 12% jump from 2020. To rent an apartment, you need to make 40 times the rent and pay first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit. One third of renters spend more than 50% of their income on rent. Yet, with those numbers and that reality, Eric Adams' final budget only gives a measly $2.5 billion to affordable and public housing. That's on top of the facts that one, he campaigned on the express promise that he'd give $4 billion to public and affordable housing. Two, that New York City's affordable housing is not so affordable in the first place. And three, that NYCHA, New York City's public housing, has over $40 billion in backlogs of repairs that have not been made. So the people living in New York City's public housing are already living in subpar conditions. Adams cut New York City's already struggling public school systems funding by a whopping $215 million. That amounted to a $1 billion loss to their budget overall with the loss of federal funding. He's defended the decision, insisting it not be called a cut because enrollment was down, but both teachers, advocates, and elected officials have pushed back, insisting that layoffs would amass, programs would end, and that there's no need to cut the funding because as New York Comptroller Brad Lander said, the Department of Education still has billions of dollars of unspent dollars left from COVID federal funding. The local chapter of the United Federation of Teachers at MS 839 in Brooklyn issued a statement saying that its budget was cut by hundreds of thousands of dollars and that many of their staff members wouldn't be able to return because of the reduction in funding. Class sizes will also increase, while arts programs and sports and enrichment programming will be gutted. 
One Brooklyn principal said she was especially concerned about the enrollment-based funding reductions because the city's projection appeared not to take into account its latest enrollment numbers at all. She stated, we have more first graders going into second grade than we, they're saying we have. State Senator Jessica Ramos held a rally outside PS69 in Jackson Heights, Queens, where her child attends, and said, these cuts don't translate to just fewer textbooks. What you're seeing is cutting guidance counselors, cutting an art teacher, cutting a music teacher. I can't tell you what my little guy would do if his trumpet was taken away from him. This is very personal. Ramos said she would like to see a budget that is responsive to the trauma that families have endured throughout the pandemic. She also said that it's a matter of trusting the principals and the teachers to know what the schools need and perhaps making those investments there. Adams expressly promised to commit an already low, low 1% of the city's budget to the Parks Department, and in his final budget, failed to even meet that, resulting in pools and parks closing that would have otherwise been open. So, education, cut. Housing, cut. Parks, cut. NYPD, $90 million increase to sit atop the $10.4 billion they already got. What's the $90 million for? Pay raises. Teachers face layoffs, but the NYPD gets more. All while this is happening, the Democratic Party, always invested in quashing progressive movements among its own voters, began touting Adams as the future of the party, insisting that his tough-on-crime, get-things-done approach was what the Democrats need to control their messaging, and that Eric Adams would be a strong White House contender, and that he can appeal to voters across different racial, economic, and educational demographics. He even spoke at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee event as a communications expert at the request of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Representative Patrick Maloney, where he vocally rebuked progressives, activists, and anyone supporting defund the police and attacking corporations, and launched his bid to host 2024's Democratic National Convention. Despite establishment Dems' best wishes that carceral and ineffective mayors are the future of the party or what voters want, here is reality. Eric Adams is going to have an uphill battle if he even expects to win a second term as New York City mayor, let alone the White House. According to Business Insider, just six months into his term, Eric Adams has the ghastly low, low approval rating of 29%. Only 29% of New Yorkers approve of his performance. A whopping 64% gave him negative ratings, stating they do not like the direction he's taking New York City in. Contrary to what the Democratic strategist would have you believe about his voter repeal, his positive rating did not exceed 33% with respondents based on party or gender or political ideology. So what do you think, Robbie? Is Eric Adams and politicians like him the future of the Democratic Party, or should they heed these polling numbers? Yeah, I think we're getting way ahead of ourselves to mint Eric Adams, who, like you said, hasn't even gotten some of the problems New York has under control. Right. Um, and I, you know, I am very critical of the police and skeptical that uh, more funding is necessarily answer, the answer for the police, uh, given that they fr frequently show that e even with the high levels of funding they already have, that they're unable uh, to deal with crime. That said, I am happy to defund the education system of New York. More cuts, please. Let them roll in. These, I don't trust the judgments of teachers whatsoever. These people failed kids for years during the pandemic. This was the group most vocal for having schools shut down forever. Kids uh, can't read, falling behind in math. 
all because of the power and influence of the teachers and unions. And now they're the going to complain. Helps? Now they're going to complain. Get these kids into schools that actually care about their needs and their well-being away from the public school teachers. Well, where are those schools? Where are those schools? People are going where they could afford public, public, the public school. How about whatever money we're spending on the public school system, which has, which by the way, has never gotten better, even no matter how much money has thrown, more and more money thrown at it every year. In general, more and more money, and it, it has not. The funding has not at all correlated with changes in math and reading scores. So I, so whatever we're giving, let's just take it, give it to the families. Well, I probably... let's just give it directly to the families and say, here's here's your whatever the per pupil funding is in New York. I'm not sure what it is. It, might, it could be fifteen, could be twenty thousand yeah. dollars, something like that per year per kid. We'll just give it to the kid. Each well, kid gets that, and uh, and I, you, you know you can get a great private school tuition for Listen, that. I would be okay in a world where they gave the money directly to families and yeah. communities and let them be able to educate their children and put adequate resources there, but they're not going to do that. They're yeah. just not going Honestly, to do it. And do I would that. argue that the New York City public school system has never quite been adequately funded. But in this current world, I think the issue is, you know, Eric Adams says, like I said, he's waging war on the homeless, right? He's been doing that since he got into office. It's very hard to, in the same breath, say, oh, we're going to save, they're going to save housing. We're going to create all this housing. We're handling homelessness, right? You're taking money from homelessness. You're taking money from housing. Well, the, the housing is another issue. <laughs> So, not everyone gets can, is going to be able to live in New York City, right? right. Out, we're out of space on the <laughs> island, right, to some degree. Or you have to but, develop, you have to build more housing. I don't know, you New York but there's, but there's this popular already, myth but. That, that it's a lack of housing, that we don't have housing available, there's nowhere to live in New York. Right. There are tons of empty buildings. Even my own apartment building, yeah. half of the building is empty, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's that people can't afford it. It's not that we don't have, you know, adequate housing. And, you know, even when New York City talks about well, affordable... Well, there was a glut of housing, they would, have, they would lower the price to fill those... And if units, you look so. at what New York City's affordable housing is, go on to Housing Connect, Google it, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I just landed me. I won the housing lottery in my yeah. apartment. Well, and you're, you live in New York. I right? live yeah, in New you're York. You're just visiting us uh, in D.C. You yes. should uh, <laughs> come down to comparatively more affordable The prices do seem lower here. Where, uh, where uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good city. I'm trying yeah. to sell people. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's very nice. It's very nice, although it, it, it looks like it has some of the same issues that, that New York City has. Well, increasingly. I, 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 New York is, yes. I, I hope, not our future. Yes. Yeah. So, you, so you agree with me. Eric Adams is probably not the future of the Democratic Party. Probably not. Probably, okay. Certainly not in this. Again, let's not. <laughs> Joe Biden is still the future of the Democratic Party. Okay. An indictment of it. But Chow, uh, he is, he we'll is both the president is. and hopefully the past. <laughs> but we'll see. Up next, the Biden administration is weighing a federal gas tax holiday. We'll discuss that with our panel coming up. More than half of Americans think the U.S. has already entered a recession, according to a new survey from the IBD Economic Optimism Index. Biden's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made the rounds on Sunday shows to discuss the impending financial doom and gloom, as 44 percent of economists also predict a recession in the near future. Here's what she had to say. I don't think a recession is at all inevitable. Um, Chair Powell uh, clearly, inflation is unacceptably high. It's President Biden's top priority to bring it down. And Chair Powell has said that his goal is to bring inflation down while maintaining a strong labor market. Um, that's going to take skill and luck, but um, I believe it's possible. I don't think a recession is inevitable. Yellen had initially dismissed inflation altogether, so we'll have to take what she says with a grain of salt. 
Last week, rumors of a gas tax were floated on Friday. And now it's looking like Biden might be weighing the measure more seriously, with Treasury Secretary Yellen discussing the tax on ABC, saying that it's an idea certainly worth considering. Friend of the show, Rafael Bernal, joins us now. He's a staff writer at The Hill. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the politics of this. Obviously, Biden's poll numbers have been falling for the entirety of his presidency. Um, people are really, I think, starting to see that this is a dire predicament with, uh, with the price of everything skyrocketing, skyrocketing gas out of control, you know, concerns about a recession coming. Um, you know, how are voters going to be handled? What do you think they're looking to the federal government to actually do? Is, are they looking for different policies? Are they looking for acknowledgement of their sufferings? I think sometimes the White House comes across as, as, as perhaps not taking this or not seeming to take this seriously enough or trying to downplay the, the reality of it for frustrated voters. That is a key question, actually. I, I always say inflation is, is a little bit like a kryptonite for politicians, for incumbents. There's just no way to defend against it. And, and there's, there's very little a White House can do sort of in the short term. There's, I mean, there are accusations that, that the president's uh, policies, that, including like the infrastructure and, and the rescue plan, have contributed to inflation, but there's debate among economists. There's really very little that the White House can technically do. And this White House has been reluctant to use sort of the, the more maybe gimmicky uh, tools at its disposal. The gas tax, it's not considering seriously because it needs to do whatever it can to, to take away this perception of inflation and recession. But it hasn't, for instance, lowered tariffs with Europe. Uh, some economists had said that that would knock one point off inflation, that there was a lot of debate on there. Uh, you know, Janet Yellen doesn't know the answer to that. Neither do I, to, to, to be sure. But they've avoided these these sort of gimmicky, like high profile political moves um, instead sort of taking an orthodox approach that, you know, economically might work. But politically, it, it doesn't seem to be convincing anyone. You said there's been a lot of debate amongst economists about how we got inflation or how we should respond to it. What are your thoughts on how we, we landed here with such high inflation numbers? Well, I am certainly not an economist, uh, but there seems to be, I mean, the, the, it, everything goes back to the pandemic that sort of disturbed the way we've been managing the economy since the, the last big inflationary uh, process in the, in the early 80s. Um, so conditions sort of conditions on the ground have changed what what i'm very interested in is is this recession or potential recession just a matter of perception like is it actually happening are people going to end up spending less money at any point and and you know it's it's the question remains and and i think the the most honest answer is who knows well, I think when, you know, when it comes to matters of perception, obviously that influences a lot about how people, you know, receive different things happening in politics. But I think when it comes to the recession and inflation, it, perception is how people are feeling it in their pockets. You no, know, right? Gas is up. People are seeing prices uh, up and going up. I don't think it's so much perception in terms of narrative. I think that there's something yeah. real there. No. 
Well, inflation is is absolutely there. I mean, the, the gas pump is a very obvious place. Uh, supermarkets are a very obvious place to measure it. A recession, I think, is a little bit harder to measure until you know it's one of those things that's measured sort of after the fact when the when the GDP numbers come out. And 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 I mean, the question is when you when you poll a lot of people, do you think we're in a recession? Are we thinking that a majority of the people polled actually know the technical definition of a recession, for instance? So it's it, it becomes a lot of about feeling and the issue about economic upswings and downturns is is that people's sentiment can become self-fulfilling. And I've read there's more than a few economies, economists that are that are worried right. that it will become self-fulfilling. Well, right. And there's certainly right. We, we can debate, you know, how many how much of, of Biden's policy uh, agenda is, is the cause of this. I think one policy that is more kind of chosen than some of the others is like COVID, very inevitable, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, what's going, the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine, obviously we didn't choose that. That's not our, our fault. But, you know, a strategy of continuing to equip the Ukrainians with, with weapons are not being clear that, the, that they have to come to a resolution uh, with Putin or try harder to have some kind of diplomatic solution, even if that involves giving up territory, that kind of thing. What, what is going on with Russia is certainly, a, 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 I think, a significant contributing factor to our, to our gas prices. And, th- you know, that is something because Biden and, and to a, maybe to an even greater extent, others in the White House or, or, or Democratic spokespeople have been so uh, so committed, even to you know sometimes openly using the language of no, this you know this is an effort to to delegitimize and de-empower uh, the, the Russian president Vladimir Putin, which. Fine, if that's the goal, just say it is the goal. But then that is a policy to have higher gas prices for a very long time, no? Yeah. Well, I I believe the president did say this is going to be expensive supporting the Ukrainians. And I I think the risk reward balance there is is has been pretty transparent. And it's been can the United States afford long term? Can the West afford long term to let Russia win anything in this war like come out with a reward whether it's all of ukraine whether it's the donbass whether it's legitimacy the very undeserved legitimacy for putin uh you know what whether any of those things is worth a short-term cut in inflation and you're right what you said like that that's a factor i didn't mention putin's timing for that war was clearly designed to put the most amount of hurt on the west and that's another thing can we reward putin for starting his war at a moment that hurt us he didn't just start a war against ukraine he started a war that he thought that we wouldn't from the united states be able to support the ukrainians because our gas prices were going to go up so high that was definitely in his planning and in his thinking i think but there's a conversation to be had versus punishing putin or rewarding putin versus punishing americans right i don't know if i would agree that it was the risk reward benefit analysis was as transparent i think initially when you saw russia invaded ukraine i think there was a lot of support especially from liberals and democrats for for helping and supporting ukraine but i'm not sure the average american understood that it would cost them in this way i think people knew it would be expensive in terms of the federal government sending out aid but i'm not sure if everybody who initially signed on recognized that gas prices would spike or if they feel it as a as a little loss or a temporary thing. And I, I think you've seen, you know, as this has continued, people lose a lot of faith that this is a temporary hike. And they think very, people don't just think we're going into a recession. People think we're already in a recession. So what do you think? 
All right, this this war is in there for the long term. This is probably going to be a long war of attrition unless, you know, something changes on the ground, which could. Um, European allies are most likely going to continue to support Ukraine, whether we do or not. So that inflation right. is sort of baked in unless something changes on the ground. And, and it's true. Americans just... You know, the one presidential speech where the president said this is going to be expensive, we're going to, you know, we're going to have to pay for this, doesn't mean that everybody listened to that speech. It doesn't right. mean that everybody got the same message from that speech. And certainly nobody thought it was going right. to be such a long term sort of slog. And, you know, right. it, it's it's it's. It's expensive for politicians yeah. and well, it's and, terrible and maybe, for incumbents. Right. And may, maybe people did hear him say that. <laughs> just don't like that answer. <laughs> don't want that. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but uh, Raphael, thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate it. A pleasure being on. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Well, we wanted to talk quickly about election results in Colombia. It's the country, not the district of. And we still have Rafael Bernal with us uh, to elaborate on what's going on there. He's a much more of a subject matter expert uh, than we are. So, Rafael, thanks for staying with us. Sure. Happy to. So tell us about this election result in Colombia. I understand a a leftist was uh, elected and and was elected, won a runoff presidential election. Um, Tell us more. Well, I mean, Gustavo Petro, this uh, leftist candidate, third time around, he's uh, he's he's lost the presidency before to sort of Colombia's um, conservative elite, uh, and that's no more. Now Gustavo Petro will take over the reins of arguably the United States' most important partner and ally in the region. That alliance is going to be shaken up. Petro is an anti-institutionalist. He's a populist. He's a former guerrilla fighter. Well, fighter is a strong word. He was a member of a guerrilla, but uh, they say he never actually took up arms. Um, he's a friend of Nicolas Maduro. It's it's a long list of ways to describe Gustavo Petro that should make the United States uncomfortable, that has, in previous elections, made Colombians very uncomfortable. They have sort of a, they have a two round election system and he had reached the, the second the second round before, but the anti Petro vote had always been strong. What changed this time is he went up against the populist, they say right wing, but really populist, nationalist uh, businessman, uh, sort of a lot, a lot of people compared his opponent, Rodolfo Hernandez, to Donald Trump. And it seems that Colombians were not comfortable enough choosing between two populists uh, to, uh, to, to scare off from Petro as they had in previous mm-hmm. elections. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a very interesting relationship. It's going to be a very interesting few, next few years for the United States in the region, a region where all the major leaders, except for Brazil, are part of this left-wing uh, group. And let's remember Brazil, um, the, the president Bolsonaro is, is facing a re-election that's not looking good for him. And the guy who's looking good is Lula, who is one of the original founders of this leftist movement in Latin America. So I mean, the, the continent has taken a very sharp turn to the left. Yeah, what explains the le- the leftist direction of, of South America? And then obviously Brazil is uh, dissenting in that, but... 
is a uh, Bolsonaro is sort of a right-wing populist figure. So certainly populism uh, yeah. of a right and left variety has just really, you know, come into its own in, in South America. What, what, to, what do we make of that phenomenon? So there's two parallel trends. There is a leftist trend like in Chile, for instance, and then there's the populist trend, which has basically covered the rest of the continent. At this point, all major countries are, are in it in one way or another. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's, there's sort of long-term poverty that hasn't been well addressed. In the 90s, there was sort of a sort of glowing moment for neoliberalism. Uh, the benefits were felt. I mean, NAFTA changed the way Mexicans do business. It, it changed the, the sort of the underpinnings of the Mexican economy. For the Colombians, uh, neoliberalism brought on a peace deal that, that changed it from a so, sort of middling narco state into a, a very powerful and institutional democracy. But the structural deficiencies, they have never been sort of they've been addressed, but they've never been successfully addressed. And, and corruption has sort of popped its head at the most uncomfortable moments for, for institutionalism in the continent. And let's not forget that populist leaders, uh, populist leaders are able to do things that those that follow democratic lines are not. And mainly people like Petro, people like Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, they have been making governance very difficult for the institutionalists for decades. They basically they throw bombs in the they throw wrenches in the system, really. And and when the system breaks, they blame whoever is in power. And that's how and, and, and that's how they get votes. And and it's a system that works. But usually once they get in power, the example of Mexico is very good. The example of Brazil is is excellent. Once they get in power, they they don't really have that many solutions, and they have to they have to stay on TV and basically, well, govern in a populist manner. Which you know the results the results will will have to wait and see what happens in the continent over the next decade. Really, are you hopeful though? Are you hopeful that you think these issues that have previously gone unaddressed will be now with this leftist being elected? Uh, frankly, not at all, because because um, a lot of these politicians that have made their careers by throwing wrenches into the system haven't proven capable of showing real solutions. And, of, and these are complicated problems. This is this is not easy. This is how do, how do you address systemic racism, classism? Uh, how do you address the lack of a broad lack of infrastructure, a, a complete separation in, in how, you know, half the country's educated and how the other half really isn't educated? So you, they, they need very deep structural solutions. And populists tend to offer very um, shallow um, message heavy policy light solutions how is this uh, or if at all going to impact uh the country's relationship with uh, the u.s right aggressively very aggressively so so petro is is unlikely to continue most of the uh the alliance with the united states as it has been structured let's remember that the alliance between colombia and the u.s was originally very uh very militarized it was it was technically a law enforcement alliance, but let's remember Colombia was fighting a 50-year civil war where the narco sort of intertwined with the with the leftist guerrilla. 
So there was there was a lot of military assistance. That assistance has become more social, more development focused over time, but it is still very security uh, heavy. That that connection is likely to be severed by Petro. Um, there there's there's really no telling in how many ways that relationship will change, but it will be a drastic change from what we've seen over the previous quarter century. So all in all, you're not hopeful about this, about this pick. Well, Petro has shown to be a, a very effective populist leader, uh, but but he's also shown, like I said, a very, a very policy light kind of guy. And and he will he will certainly mend bridges with Nicolas Maduro. So that will further complicate things with with the United States. And he has he hasn't really shown in in the way he talks about democracy he hasn't shown adherence to the principles of democracy but colombian institutions are very strong so there there will be there will be a, a fight between petro's lack of institutionalism and and what the country has built over the last quarter century the hills rafael bernal thank you so much for joining us happy to be here we appreciate it and we will be back with more rising in just a minute YouTube has removed a video clip that the January 6th House Select Committee posted on its channel that included then-President Donald Trump making election fraud claims, false election fraud claims. The video was uploaded on June 14th and also included recorded testimony of former Attorney General Bill Barr, but did not include the part uh, where Barr responded to Trump's assertion, which had been stated numerous times throughout the hearing elsewhere, that the election was not stolen, contrary to what Trump said. The video platform deemed the committee violated YouTube's election integrity policies, offering this explanation to the New York Times, quote, our election integrity policy prohibits content advancing false claims that widespread fraud, errors or glitches change the outcome of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. If it does not provide sufficient context, we enforce our policies equally for everyone and have removed the video uploaded by the January 6th committee channel. Wow. So I was actually on CNN this week to discuss YouTube's policy with Brian Stelter. Here's some of that. I really think this has been eye-opening, though. Uh, it was eye-opening when it happened to you at the Hill. It's eye-opening for the committee. I think this makes people think twice about their relationship to these big tech platforms. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of misinformation out there, but I think the efforts to absolutely moderate it in all cases can go overboard, and this is a good case of that. What if Trump was speaking and it was being just being covered live by some outlet on YouTube? What, what about C-SPAN? Are they going to? Is YouTube going to take the position that every like claim has to be vetted in real time? Right now, they're only saying it's election misinformation, and then some specific COVID claims. But as we know, Brian, some even some you know claims about efficacies of certain you know what the vaccines do, what masks work, like that, the knowledge of that changes over time. It, different mm -hmm. recommendations come out. So the idea that they would have some blanket ban on, in any one circumstance on just those subjects, it seems very weird to me. I think it might give people the idea that like everything on YouTube is being vetted because if, it, if, it, if that wasn't true, they would take it down. And that oh. would be even more confusing to people. We should also note that YouTube changed the video page to private. Um, so there's some backstory to this me because we went through something similar to this uh, on, on the Hill. Right. Uh, Rising was off uh, for a week, off YouTube for that. a week, because uh, we similarly, we had played a, a clip of, uh, of, of Trump, I believe it was me and Ryan and Emily Jashinsky, 
and we played a clip where Trump makes the contested election claim, and we were not, the segment was actually about something else, yeah. so we didn't, it was about Ukraine, so we were actually, like, wanting Trump's thoughts on Ukraine. Right. So we didn't jump in and say, by the way, that claim about the election was false, even though, you know, we've covered numerous times on this show that, that those claims are false. Nobody thinks that either me or Ryan think that. But YouTube said that because that claim was not corrected or there was no disclaimer on the video, there was no surrounding context, we had violated the policy. It was as if we were spreading this view ourselves. Right. And they took us down uh, for a week. And we, Ryan and I and Kim and, uh, and Emily have all been very... Uh, very critical of this policy because, look, there is a massive difference between Trump saying us and, uh, and saying us the claim and us as, 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 as a opinion journalists, as commentators, as yeah. deliverers of breaking news. We didn't we're telling you that Trump said that we're not right. telling you it was right. So, you know, I had wanted, actually, I wanted to give YouTube the benefit of the doubt and believe that it was some kind of automatic al algorithm, and the minute it picked it up, it just automatically did that, but once brought to their attention, they, they would correct would it. Yes, that's what I thought. But they're actually doubling down on it, and that seems absurd, right? Yeah. Because the idea that you, it's still news, right? You still need to be able to cover it. You need to be right. able to comment on it. And obviously, for the purposes of the January 6th committee hearings, you know they're not in any way advocating it or suggesting that it's true. That That's literally... Right. That's just right. a possibility. The committee is trying to call attention to, <laughs> to the, their belief, the fact yes. that the things Trump said about the election was not true. And you're actually thwarting their efforts because you're yes. objecting to how they're doing. And look, it's their platform. It's YouTube can have whatever policies it wants. So I'm just criticizing those policies because I think right. in some cases they don't make sense. And this but, is a really good example I, of it. But I think, see, so listen, I'm someone who fully believes in the danger of Donald Trump. I do believe I'm, I was all for them taking him off Twitter. I'm all for them, you know, having these... Uh, disclaimers on videos or things talking about him. I'm okay with that. But the idea that there are going to be things that are false, true, in between things that need mm -hmm. to be commented on in the news. If you can't even present, you know what I mean, present what it is you want to talk about, you can't show people a clip of what it is you're criticizing or criticizing or what an entire committee has convened to address, that's, a, that's absurd. I can't really defend that. It doesn't make any sense. And, and it, it's not, again, the, the things Trump said yeah. that contributed to what happened on January 6th, yeah were primarily, primarily things he was saying in person, not on social media. Like, he addressed the actual crowd of people who then went and, and, and stormed the Capitol. It, it wasn't, it, you know, Twitter took him down, obviously, and then we have these policies for YouTube. And I'm just, like, his actual physical presence and words are what directly caused the thing. You know, I think that might speak to the overall uh, chaos that is Donald Trump, because yeah. I, I personally, I, re I remember his Twitter and I remember his tweets and feeling very much so like they do contribute to invoking all kind of insanity. So again, I'm not against uh, taking him down on Twitter. I'm not against disclaimers for Donald Trump. But in this case, I do think there has to be a limit on a limit on how much you're preventing journalists and media people and everybody from being able to comment on it. Because regardless of right or wrong, true, false, there needs to be able to have open discourse. It's a very, yeah, it's a very slippery, slippery slope. You end up doing ridiculous things like, like this. this. But the new CNN chief, uh, Chris Licht, wants the network actually to say goodbye also to the phrase, the big lie, when referring to Donald Trump's false stolen election claim, saying the phrase is too close to the Democratic Party's branding. And I also addressed this on reliable sources. So I said that, so I was asked about this, do, should we keep calling it the big lie? And I honestly thought, I don't know, I don't really care. I, yeah. I, but I see why, uh, so this new boss of CNN, 
his his thinking is that it's it's uh, Democratic Party messaging to mm -hmm. call it the big lie. So if CNN is also just calling it the big lie, like you're giving into this, and that, that's been true on other things, even the, that Florida like the don't say gay bills. Yeah. I, I would try to say what critics refer to as the don't say gay yeah. bill, but per, proponents of it call it something else. So if you just call it a, what the Democrats are calling it, then you do make yourself an arm of the Democratic Party. Right. But at the same time, if you're busy only you know policing the left or their slogan or the liberals and the Democrats from how they're calling things, what we're naturally going to slide into is just conceding what are the Republican talking points on it. And for me personally, I think it's kind of absurd for us to criticize CNN on Democratic branding or being too closely uh aligned with the Democratic Party when things like Fox News exist. It just seems absurd to me. That's my personal belief. Well, is, is the biggest lie even what Trump said about the... the I think my, it's a big my, lie. I don't think it's the biggest lie. I think, I think, I think Trump and his base lie all day. destruction. That's what I said on, on Brian Stelter. That's the, that's the big political lie of I, our lives. I think, I, you know, honestly, hot take, but I think, the, I, I think the biggest lie of right now is conflating things to a culture war, what I think is a lot of just, you know, open and... If you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan. That was a big lie. <laughs> that was, uh, a lot of people perfectly happy with their health plans got kicked off because of Obamacare. Listen, listen, <laughs> we're not going to get into universal health care and Obamacare. Well, regardless, uh, I think the policy is good, yeah. but it was not true that everyone who wanted their, to stay on their current plan was Probably true. Listen, politics, let's be honest, right? Politics, there's going to be a lot of lying in between a lot of gray area because a lot right, of what It's people, normal. It happens all the time. Yeah. A lot of it is what people are talking, messaging. You don't really even have the ability when it comes to like the news, the amount of time people have to have the like in-depth nuanced conversations they want to have. So, of course, there's going to be some level of slow. Do you think Trump is a uniquely... Uh, more so than other, a normal political figure, uh, dishonest. In, in some ways, his, his dishonesty is more obvious because he has no subtlety about him. Yeah. Uh, look, I think he's a pathological liar, shameless. but I think Hillary Clinton's a pathological liar. I think every most of our political figures are pathological I think a lot liars. of government officials, a lot of people obviously engage in this work, are there's going to be a level of dishonesty because there's just a certain level to which they're not going to have open discourse uh, with the people, even when, they, even when they want it to be, right? I think there are a lot of times when I'm sure there are politicians who would want to say, you know what, I kind of agree with you, I don't this, da-da-da-da-da, but they have different considerations, so I think dishonesty is unfortunately a part of the game. Do I think Trump is the most dishonest politician of our time? No, I think Trump is shameless in a particular kind of way that led a lot of other people to feel comfortable being shameless. I think before there was a certain level of um, decorum, a lot of, you know, let's get along, let's not, we're not going to say the ultimate thing I really think about this issue, the thing that I know was really going to incite, you know, uh, uh, outrage. And I think Trump came along and said, listen, I don't care nothing about that. This is what I this is what I want to say. And the people that support me, they like it too. Wrong, right, true, whatever it is. And they go along with that. And I think that was the dangerous thing about Trump. It's not really about his dishonesty. I think it's more about what he mobilized. Russia caused Donald Trump to be elected. Maybe that's the big oh, lie. Oh, ciao. Maybe that's the big lie. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Public health experts have issued guidance around how to have safe sex during the era of monkeypox and they are a doozy. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is advising virtual sex and social distance masturbation to curb the spread of monkeypox. The CDC is recommending people have sex with their clothes on, wash their, quote, fetish gear, and masturbate six feet away from partners. The CDC confirmed earlier this month that there have been 45 monkeypox cases in the U.S., and two more states announced what could be monkeypox cases over the weekend. The probes are in Missouri and Indiana, where contact tracing is now underway. 
Did not expect ever be saying the phrase socially distanced masturbation on television, but here we are. Right. In a new article, associate editor at Reason, exam, uh, Liz Wolf, examines the CDC's new recommendations and considers how much advice we should actually be taking from our CDC overlords. Liz joins us now to discuss. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me. This is an important and fun topic. Uh, so I, you know, we I think we've taken turns uh, at Reason uh, complaining about whatever ridiculous guidance the CDC puts out. You know, we, it's always important to remember that these are the same people who like, you know, don't think you should ever eat uh, eggs that are not like been cooked for 18 hours. That you the, the amount of wine a woman who is capable of being pregnant should have is like zero, um, and and sorts of all sorts of ridiculously cautious things. But then monkeypox strikes, and they're not saying like never leave your homes and don't have sex with anyone. They're saying okay, well we can't stop you from having sex. So if you go to the sex party, maybe don't like lick the lesions or whatever, right? Well, is that basically what they're which, doing here? Which is perplexing, because you would think the one time you could tell people, hey, don't have sex, is monkeypox, because I don't think anybody's trying to have sex with you if you got monkeypox. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's this consistent problem, this recurrent problem with the CDC, which is that they give you incredibly obvious advice, and then <laughs> they sort of don't understand how people actually operate in the wild. Like, one of their pieces of advice was like, if you think you have monkeypox, you know, maybe keep your clothes on when you go to raves and orgies. And it's like, well, I should think that people would be somewhat repulsed by the idea of having sex with you if you have open lesions and sores on your right. genitals. I like, hope so. That seems to be something that you should investigate before you go to orgies. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an orgy expert. Hopefully I haven't been billed as such. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's there's there's a degree of common sense. And so I, I don't want to, you know, fault the CDC too, too much for the fact that they're trying to attempt to spread accurate information about this. We're in the very early stages of this. We have, what, a couple hundred, you know, a hundred-ish people in the U.S. who have contracted this so far, and we have a few thousand cases worldwide. It's spread to some 30, 40 countries. But I do think it's worth continuing to true back to the fact that the CDC has given us really impractical uh, and kind of clumsy, absurd advice for a really long time now. They tell us not to eat raw uh, egg yolks. They tell us not to eat rare or medium rare steak. They tell pregnant women to do all kinds of things which are, you know, somewhat not rooted in the scientific guidance anymore uh, or somewhat outdated. And then when it came to COVID, like, I think it's important that we not forget all of their their policy failures. I mean, these were people who were advising young children, children between the ages of two, three, four, to mask in schools when we know for a fact that that's not what most Western developed European nations were doing. Uh, and, you know, that's the sort of age group that we know is least at risk. And for whatever reason, the adults at the CDC, the bureaucrats, imposed uh, this policy preference on the, the least vulnerable group of kids that are most likely to have learning loss and suffer um, socialization losses from this. Right. In, in what world, I, though it's the world we live in, can the CDC say or is unwilling to say to people, you know, don't go to raves and orgies, uh, will not say that because of monkeypox, but is happy to say, yeah, I guess a toddler has to wear a mask forever or, you know, until yeah. we can vaccinate and boost them or something like yeah, why is why was that not off the table? If, if, if telling people not to not to uh, have risky sex while on monkeypox is not off the table, shouldn't we couldn't we also take off the table that? That like In forcing terms of children parties of society, you would think that it's like, okay, well, the number one thing we care about is making sure our young can be properly socialized and learn how to read. And then maybe like really, really, really down on that list is like, oh, we care about your ability to go to raves and orgies. I mean, I don't know, Robbie, we're libertarians. And so 
you know, we're not interested in passing judgment on people's choices. I know you're extremely anti-child. You know, it's important <laughs> to fully do whatever they want. And if you're a parent of a young kid, it's important that your kid be able to socialize and go to school and, and be unencumbered. But you know what? If you're a childless person who really, really cares about raves and values them, by all means, live your life, do whatever right. you want. I, I just don't, I, I don't like when children are used as a policy crutch. It's, you know, we, like, oh, for the, because of the kids, you know, we have to criminalize comic books or something. Uh, but this, but COVID was a case of me being the one like, yes, because of the kids and their need, like we shouldn't do all these insane restrictive policies. I'm going to, I'm going to shoot the, the CDC a little bit of bail when it comes to the masking in schools <laughs> on, only because teachers and students themselves in school were protesting and asking for masks harder than anybody else. They themselves, students all over the school, all over the country and teachers themselves wanted masking. So I'm not going to criticize that too much. And parents themselves seem like they were interested in this when it comes to the school initiatives. But I will say this. I do think the CDC has very clearly uh, lost credibility during the term of COVID. I think that is pretty fair. They've given conflicting instructions themselves. I remember when the lockdown originally happened and it was, we don't need masks. It's hysteria to get masks. And then suddenly it was mask or an absolute. And then it was no mask. You know what I mean? They have yeah. gone. I will say but this. I they have gone across the board so many times that it is completely legitimate for people to doubt them. And I will say they had similar crazy uh, instructions. If you remember when the lockdown first happened uh, <laughs> about about safe sex and kissing and all these different things. Right. There was COVID. Yeah. They had those. They did have those COVID. I remember laughing at them, too. I can't remember what they are because they seem so much more serious now in relation. Listen, I got it. When we uh, were trying the New York City Department of, of Health was trying to, to make glory holes a thing, which oh, I, I uh, this is a family friendly program, so I'm not going to explain uh, what that is. But no, I think your point is really, really fair. I mean, we had the CDC in February and March 2020 and the Surgeon General telling us the quote unquote noble lie, which, by the way, I don't think any lies can really be particularly noble. Uh, <laughs> basically saying that that masks want to protect you and the idea behind this the intention was good right the yeah. intention was to ensure that they could be rationed and go toward uh doctors and nurses who are most in need and ensure that we didn't have shortages to me that's a basic uh that it's immediately uh, an, a public health agency squandering public trust in a way that's really indefensible but it also shows a misunderstanding of supply and demand in markets and how different companies adapt and change when you have a situation where you have enormous demand for something, what you see is a whole bunch of companies uh, deciding to repurpose their factory space to actually accommodate that demand, to be able to sell those things, to, to increase the supply. And that's exactly what we saw in the weeks following the Surgeon General's noble lie. So I think had public health entities had a little bit more trust in the ability of the market to provide, you know, they might not have done that initial squandering of public trust. And I think I think it's really important to continuously sort of ding them and remember the degree to which they really did that. Because one of the most important things is that COVID isn't going to be the only pandemic. It's not going to be the only public health crisis that we encounter. We're seeing that right now with monkeypox. And so the yeah. fact that they squandered so much public trust over the course of two years makes it so it's going to be a little bit harder when the next pandemic or the next public health crisis comes around for us to really trust our governing officials. That's a big yeah. problem. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a little bit harder. I think it's going to be tremendously difficult because I think people, even people that I still currently know that are very much so still taking COVID seriously and still believe in masking these different initiatives are still not interested in what the CDC has to say about it at this point. They're going by what their personal belief systems are. But I think the CDC lost credibility, I think, across the board in many respects. We now know that the, yeah. we now know that the guidance they gave us for most of the pandemic to wear a mask, wear any mask. Well, now we know that just any 
any old mask is actually not doing very much good. That's now something that the public health establishment has conceded. They want you to wear uh, the, the much higher quality mask. That was not the guidance for like a year plus of the pandemic. So, so many things that they've said have proven out to be like, well, that actually wasn't totally accurate. Right. Well, and we also saw this, like we can look to other countries for their examples. We saw this, I believe it was South Korea. It might've also been Japan where they were distributing extremely high quality uh, N95 and KN95 masks directly to people's doorsteps from the get-go. And so there was this emphasis, and in a lot of Europe, there was this emphasis on mask quality. And so it's this question of like, okay, well, you almost need to make the asks uh, extremely specific and uh, extremely few and far between in order to have greater compliance. I mean, you have this issue no matter what, where like a bunch of people hanging out in the Florida Keys who are listening to Ron DeSantis, you know, might not be, uh, even if you distributed KN95s to their doorsteps, they might not be super uh, obedient. And I get it, it's fine. You know, to some degree, we have this, this independent American spirit. But it's worth looking at the examples of how other countries handled this because we all went through this around the same time and thinking, okay, well, well, our CDC and our FDA could have done a much better job on a lot of fronts. And like, I'm not a burn it all down um, anarcho-capitalist libertarian uh, per se. I could be persuaded. But, you know, by and large, I want the CDC and the FDA to be entities that we can trust and that we can rely on in times of crisis. And I think they've really proven uh, a degree of inefficiency and incompetence that really gives me pause. It makes me very concerned about how we're going to handle future future issues. And monkeypox could become a, a really bad problem. We don't know. We're, not. we're very much in the beginning stages. So well, I, I, I'm not, you know, generally, I also don't know what they're talking about when they say things like virtual sex or have sex with your clothes on. I feel like they're just setting themselves up to be mocked online which is what we're doing right now. <laughs> so thank you uh, very much for joining us, Liz. I'll see you at the monkeypox rave. <laughs> I'll see you there, Robbie. <laughs> and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. A 15-year-old died and three other people, including a police officer, were wounded during a shooting in one of Washington, D.C.'s most highly trafficked neighborhoods last night. Gunfire broke out around 8.30 p.m. after hundreds of people had gathered for a Juneteenth celebration concert near 14th and U Streets. Several handguns were recovered at the scene. Officials have yet to announce any arrests in connection with the shooting. Hmm. Well, this comes as the investigation into the Robb Elementary School shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has revealed that police on the scene never actually tried to open the door to the conjoined classrooms where Salvador Ramos massacred 21 people in 77 minutes. This is according to a source with access to surveillance footage from inside the school. So take that uh, with whatever uh, precaution or grain of salt you want to. But during the shooting, responding police were given a custodial key ring thought to contain access to classrooms 111 and 112. However, sources say Chief Peter Arredondo used the ring to instead jimmy the locks on other classroom doors nearby in attempt to locate the master key never using it on the classrooms where Ramos had trapped students and teachers, where some had been uh, shot, uh, many were dead, but others were frantically calling 911 for help. Rob Elementary school doors are designed to automatically lock from the inside. However, latest evidence suggests the door to rooms 111 and 112 may have been unlocked the whole time, allowing Ramos to enter, leave, and re-enter the rooms at least once. So, I mean, that would be totally 
in keeping with the trajectory of this story to right. learn that yes, the doors were unlocked and they could have gone on, they could have gone in and shot him at any time because this is the most stunning police failure you have ever heard of in your entire right. life. From from the school resource officer wasn't there when he came. He passed the shooter, went and confronted a teacher. Uh, the police, the Arredondo didn't bring his radio in uh, when he became the the coordinator on the ground, so they couldn't get in. They had more trouble getting in contact with him, despite the kids in the room calling over and over again. Uh, we have their transcripts. They're horrifying to read. Parents having to go in, one parent at least, restrained, many parents restrained, right. one broke free of the restraints, went in, had saved rescued her, her saved kids, her kids, got them out. The parents out there begging the police to do anything, them just kind of establishing a perimeter as they wait, as they wait, as and they you, wait. Finally, the Border Patrol says, to hell with this, we're going in, and that's after an hour plus. And, and you know what's an important note I think we never discussed? You would think, right, that even, you know, if, even if your initial impetus is to stop the parents from going in, maybe for their safety or for, you yeah. know, to... Stop to them to go in because you're going in. But Fine. after the parents have now broken free, they are going yeah. in, in fact, rescuing their children, you would think that would, that would, that would, you know, encourage you to say, you know what, okay, parents are going in rescuing their children. We have to do something. We have to make some kind of action. No, they continue arresting trying, and criminalizing parents. trying to find this key because they, they think the door is locked, but they maybe didn't, they maybe didn't verify that we don't know that it was. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an egregious, sick level of incompetence. Like, it's a sick level of incompetence because the more you learn, the more you recognize that undoubtedly that many people did not mm -hmm. have to die, right? Mm -hmm. An entire fourth grade class didn't need to get slaughtered. And it's a shame that this isn't surprising. People died on the way, right? People taken out of that classroom died on the way to the hospital right. or when they got to the, the hospital. So those are people who might have survived if they've gotten medical attention sooner. And there's just no, there's no debate about this because right. they were trained. The police had training. They they had they had recently done training right. on what to do in the mass shooting scenario. It's not a this school mass school shootings don't happen a lot. It's not right. a common thing. But the training is you don't wait, you don't establish a perimeter, you don't you just you go in and you confront the shooter right. and you try to kill him. And That's even just if what you, you do. even if you wanted to justify that, so though and say right. okay maybe they wanted to wait, they wanted for the tactical right. sheets. They showed up. Border Patrol and these law enforcement right. agencies, in fact, showed up pretty promptly, to be honest. They showed up at 12 o'clock. The call was made at 1130. They show up. They have their tactical sheets. They're re prepared to go in. They still yeah. don't. And then you mean to tell me, not only are y'all waiting out there and stopping all these other agencies from getting involved while uh, children are in the classroom calling 911 for help, but you don't even check the door? Like, you not only didn't go in, you didn't even check. No attempt was right. even made. That is a... And look, it it's is, a life and death scenario. It's scary. He had shot at the police officers already. He had grazed two officers. I, right. It's... It's scary. It's tough. And, and you know, they're heroes for, for going in and, do, and, and fighting the shooter. They, they would be heroes if they had done that. That's their job. But they didn't. They would be people who did their jobs. Here they are people who, who very poorly didn't right. do their jobs. And some other people, some other law enforcement agencies whose, responsible, whose responsibility it isn't even, he right. had to come in and do what three different, different departments they have in Uvalde refused right. to do. This is the school. The school has its own police department. You'd think... They'd know what to do right. when their moment comes. And, and unfortunately, and, and what I think is even more scathing is the fact that if you, if you had any doubt that they, they knew what they were trained to do, you know because the children were also trained for school drills and they knew. They hid, they were quiet, they called, and what mm -hmm. happens? Not only did they not come in, but then they come in and call for a child. They call the child's name, scream there for help. something like that. A child, right, they came right. in and they screamed, if you need help, you know, scream, whatever, right. for help. So a child who had been hiding and being quiet like they'd been trained to do and called out shot. and got shot. And then got shot. Unbe unbelievable level of failure. Mm. So Uvalde city officials have hired a public law firm in an effort to block the release of records relating to the shooting, including body cam footage. According to NPR, a part of the city's legal strategy involves using the, quote, 
dead suspect loophole, which bars the public disclosure of information pertaining to crimes in which no one has been convicted, including when a suspect has died. And the cover-up. It's unbelievable. Obviously, this is in the public interest. We all documents relating to this because we need accountability. Right. The public demands accountability and deserves it. I mean, I guess it's not surprising. It's indicative of their yes. level of, of uh, right? Isn't that what they, the police always say? Oh, well, if you have nothing to hide, you know, why are you and trying to hide, exercise your rights? Hiding so, everything. Yeah. Materially, not not participating with the federal investigation into it, not trying to provide the cameras. Uh, one of them said, they said uh, they need to conceal the body cam footage. Originally, what they originally said was, oh, this might, you know, uh, expose to shooters the ways that police are ill-equipped and ineffective, right? Which in and of itself, don't get me started, right? Oh, so we know, so we know. But second, they said, oh, they need to conceal embarrassment. They want to protect officers from embarrassment. <laughs> People's children are dead, and they want to protect officers They're from public employees. They work for us. They screwed up on such a massive scale. It's incomprehensible. Right. And we deserve the truth. We deserve accountability. And firings. And firings. Yeah. Yep. And prosecutions, yep. if it was criminal Show neglect. Do. Show do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising uh, right after this. During a sit-down with the Financial Times, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said that it would be disruptive for any Democrat to challenge a second Joe Biden run for the White House and that she believes he intends to run for re-election. In response to the interviewer saying Democrats seem to be going out of their way to lose elections by taking up activist causes like the transgender debate and defund the police, she warned that America is on the precipice of losing our democracy, saying... We are standing on the precipice of losing our democracy, and everything that everybody else cares about then goes out the window. The most important thing is to win the next election. The alternative is so frightening that whatever does not help you win should not be a priority. They always say the next election is the most important election. I was just about to say that. It's always, it's always, it's always, always the most always, important election. It's always, it doesn't matter what your issues are. You must vote blue. We're deeply in danger. Please vote blue. Not yeah. that I am saying that we should vote red. I just want to be clear. But that is always the And response. Republicans always say the next election is the most important election as yes. well. And that socialism will take over the entire country. Yes. Unless we have another R. Absolutely. We, we libertarians are always kind of like... We're going to dislike this no matter what. Yes. So it doesn't seem that important because we were unhappy before. We're right. going to be unhappy again. We're going to be unhappy. I think it's a popular, a popular establishment Democrat mm -hmm. uh, Dem talking point to criticize activists and progressives. And I've said a million times, I do not know what they think they stand to gain by constantly criticizing their own voter base. I, regardless of how you feel about it, if you recognize there's a large contingency, contingency of your party that feels this way, cares about these causes, the very least, even if you don't want to do nothing because we know they don't do anything, mm -hmm. You could at least offer some empty rhetoric, but instead they always seem to open their mouth to join hands, I feel like, with Republicans in criticizing that base. And also I want to say this, a lot of these different tough on crime people you see, like we talked about on my radar, like Eric Adams or the mayor of Chicago, are not people who are polling well, who are liked by their own you know, city. Mm -hmm. So this continued argument that the death of the party is that as opposed to, you know, I don't know, people like Hillary Clinton and themselves? Well, but on some of these issues, I think the progressive activists are out of step with what the base wants on some of the culture stuff, uh, for, for sure. And and also, and the activists on those issues, uh, gender issues, uh, et cetera, are, they do not relent but, in, in attacking what is, quote unquote, their side. 
So I don't, I don't know why I don't, Democrats sh should feel any need to play nice with that. I don't disagree with you that uh, probably, and this is not to say I don't, because I fully, I fully yeah. very much so are in support of transgender rights and everything they're advocating for, but I won't disagree that I don't think the largest contingency of yeah. America, even amongst Democrats and the left, are concerned with these issues, which is why I think it is probably a misstep to continue conflating uh, what is large popular support amongst leftists and liberals alike when it comes to policing and these issues, constantly conflating right. them with these... Uh, newer and maybe not as widely supported issues when it comes to like transgender activists and things like that. I think that's a mistake. Right. I would part. say that I'm a supporter of transgender rights, but I'm sure the transgender activist community would say like my I'm I'm basically I'm a far right fascist. Yeah, 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 and sure. if, if my views are far right fascist, I, I think my views are, are probably pretty broadly represented among the general public, or if not more liberal than the general public on social right. issues. So I have to think you're, this is like an 80-20 kind of issue, even among Democrats. But, if you're, you know, for, but, or maybe for who's going to win the swimming tournament and that kind of stuff. But to speak to that, how many, to constantly blame, like those are the issues that the, Dem the Democratic Party is facing, right? Let's pretend that I agree with them, that these are Twitter causes and Twitter yeah. issues and stuff Twitter like that. Twitter causes, the that's average, what they are. Well, not that I agree, but I'm, I'm going to humor it, right? Okay. The average person... They're not even on Twitter. They're not having these conversations and stuff like that, right? The, the, the ire where you're seeing these large bubbles and stuff pop up online, you're in these discourse communities. You're the one that's taking the time when you get a mainstream media and stuff to draw attention to this and to conflate this as some issue that your party is going after. Let's be honest. Most establishment Dems and the bigger Dems, you see, do you see them talking about, you know, transgender rights? No. I don't see them being the particular, you know, champions of, of these causes. No, you're right, you're right. It's the, but the media is absolute, the mainstream media, right. progressive media, loves the activist causes, is totally beholden to the activists. And there are woke kind of activist type stuff in the firm, in companies, in, not just on social media, but in places where other people right. work that are making life miserable for everyone by being so overly but, sensitive and insane. Again, I can't necessarily... That's my, that's my thesis. I can't necessarily agree with that, but I do think it is a mistake. It is a, it is a mistake. If you think something is somehow foreshadowing your party's mm -hmm. causes or agenda, which you think would make your party... Uh, uh, favorable to people, which I say no. We have your, we, we gave you, you have your, you have, that's what they did. They rallied around Joe Biden, right? We made this moderate establishment, then we, we gave it to you, we got it, we all got on board. Ratings extremely low, right? And we gave you a lot of those people ratings who are very much so not in, tout, in, in tune with what the left wants of these activists or progressives, and they're not doing well, right? But then you take these opportunities and you draw attention to it, and all you really do is irritate, you know what I mean? Irritate, you know, leftists, especially those, like I said, conflating policing issues and, and racial issues and Black Lives Matter and all these kinds of progressive causes, just just jumping them in with every new issue that pops up or a transgender causes, I think is a mistake. Here's a question I have for you. What do you make of the democracy in danger kind of framing? Is that really a narrative that is going to drive people to vote? We're in danger of our losing our democracy, so you have to vote and you have to vote for Democrats or else we won't have a democracy anymore. That seems like a very lofty, philosophical, kind of elitist concern. I don't know that is res going well, to resonate with people, regardless I think it of is. whether it's true. I, think I don't it, know that it's true I think either. we know uh, it's a compelling narrative for Dems because they do it all the time, right? Like you see yeah. it. That's often uh, the argument. And I think you saw the result of people really did buy into that when it comes to Donald Trump. And that's mostly because they've seen right. they've seen what they didn't like. You know what I mean? Four years of Donald Trump and people did run out to the polls to get rid of Donald Trump. So I don't think it is an, an ineffective. I don't think it's completely ineffective. But I think without like a boogeyman like Trump, like, you yeah. know, clearly, you know, uh, in the record, I don't know if it's going to be as compelling here. But I do 
I don't disagree that I, I personally I do think a lot of what's happening on the right is just open, unashamed bigotry. That's what I think. You know, uh, I do think there is a danger of letting you see what's happening with all these trigger laws. You see what's happening with Roe v. Wade. You see all the different things they're proposing when it comes to LGBT rights. You see the different the uh, intention of increasing police funding everywhere, despite with these progressive movements. I do think you see a very concerted, deliberate effort on the on the part of the right to uh, attack progressive movements in these marginalized communities. So I don't entirely disagree. I just don't think it's going to be as compelling now with this next election as it was the last time with Donald Trump if, you know. If Republicans are, are so crazy and so bigoted and so wrong, why are they more popular than ever? Why are you they think, winning? You, 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 think the, you think the status quo, well, the, the status just, quo has never been incredibly popular? Well, I'm just saying it's, it's <laughs> weird to say that, like, they're not going to, right, the, the media, some Democrats have this special concern about Donald Trump uh, stealing the election because of because of, of him making false election claims mm -hmm. and trying to contest the results, even having lost. But and so I think they think he's going to run again. He's going to be the candidate again and, and somehow, you know, use the 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 people who are loyal to him in the election kind of places he's installed them. But the far more likely outcome, the like wildly more likely outcome, is that he just wins outright because Democrats are unpopular, or DeSantis, or whoever the R is, Again. wins because Biden is extremely unpopular and everything costs too damn much. I listen. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate claims. Like I said, I believe don't people didn't really vote for Biden; they voted against Trump. I think that's true. I think, I think that's true. I think Democrats can be unpopular for a number of different legitimate reasons. That does not take away from the fact that. Uh, many people feel very much so like what's happening on the right is bigotry. And, and to be honest, I want to make sure I say that I make this point. Just because something is popular, it's in large numbers. Just because, you know, there are lots of Republicans or, or a bigotry is popular doesn't make it not bigotry, right? And I think it's very interesting how in a country that incarcerates like two million of its population, people have such an easy time believing that many people are bad, throw away the key, blah, 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 blah. But when you do the numbers on how many people uh, will rally behind and support, you know, uh, bigotry and white supremacy and homophobia and all these different things, all of a sudden it's that many people can't be bad, that many people can't be big. I think it's inconsistent. It's an inconsistent argument. So well, that's where I stand. Well, but that. I think that's a losing argument for Democrats. I don't think Democrats, but the, the reality is Democrats aren't making the argument. And that's what I'm saying. Democrats, let's not pretend like I speak for the Democratic Party, right? Like I'm yeah. not representative of the average voice yeah. in the Democratic Party. I'm sure they would call me a far left crazy, you know, themselves. So let's not act like they're making it. They're, they're making all these moderate centrist arguments that we keep insisting they need to make to do well and not, you know, appease the crazies and the lefts and the progressives. But how's that? How's that shaking out for them? How's it going? Not well? Not it's well. It's not going well. Exactly. That we agree on. It is not going well. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we will discuss renewed gun control efforts on Capitol Hill. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Well, in response to the United Kingdom's decision to allow WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be extradited to the U.S., journalist Glenn Greenwald wrote, Julian Assange is easily one of the most accomplished, pioneering, and consequential journalists of his time. That's precisely the reason he's in prison and why most of the U.S. corporate media class, knowing how he shames them, is silent, if not cheering. U.S. media weren't the only ones who were silent. Many progressive politicians that tout press freedom seem to have little to say in the issue, save of Congresswoman Ilan Omar and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Greene retweeted Greenwald saying, if we really care about the First Amendment, then we should care about Julian Assange. 
Greenwald then responded to Green, leave aside whatever views you have of MTG, just put them in a corner for a second, okay, have we done that? <laughs> now think about the indisputable fact that not AOC, Bernie, or a single squad member could or would say most of what is in this thread, let alone in this tone, and ask why. And as we noted, Congressman Omar did end up coming out against the UK's ruling on Assange. I was very happy uh, to see that. Uh, this is, I think, the most certainly the most pivotal and important uh, press freedom issue right now. Uh, they are still trying to prosecute Julian Assange uh, for uh, for the crime of journalism, for mm -hmm. for telling the state. Uh, for publicizing embarrassing things that the state hid and lied about to the American people. He made that uh, available to us. That was not a crime. You can say, you know, maybe how that information was obtained by who obtained it. Maybe that was some crime. Maybe it was in the public interest anyway, so we should let it go. Certainly they should let go this prosecution. I don't know why they're still hell-bent on bringing him to the U.S. to punish him. They could let it go at any time and should. He has suffered uh, physically. He has suffered mentally. Uh, we've interviewed uh, his brother on the show many times. Uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it is the press issue of our time. It is something the media should be covering more. I don't see nearly enough of it. It's something they should cover every day. Yeah. But uh, a lot on the agenda, I guess. We still have to figure out what exactly Trump said when for the stoking of the January 6th. We're all very, very, very eager to find out some new wrinkles in that one, even though I think we pretty much have that one figured out. But uh, <laughs> Listen, I mean, I'm never in favor of the way the U.S. uses the criminal system in the first place. Like I said, it, it doesn't, this doesn't surprise me. I understand why this is a big mm -hmm. issue and uh, this, because obviously it seems they're prosecuting him, right, because they don't like the information he shared. They don't want those things being shared. To they, want to they want to send a message. Right? Exactly. They don't want, if you, if you, you, they don't want whistleblowers. Exactly. They don't want people but speaking up. If you know, and, and which is messed up, but it's not any more or less messed up than how America uses and weaponizes the criminal system in the first place. That's what they do. There are countless political prisoners in America. That's literally their response to anything. And as a criminal attorney, I just cannot pretend to be shocked mm. or outraged about this. This is how they respond. If anything... He's lucky he's gotten away as long as he has, uh, right? For, I would, but I would say what he, what they're prosecuting him for is First Amendment protected activity, which is not true of everyone that's in prison. Right. Certainly I some mean, people are in prison for but violence. I, but some people are in, but most, I think most people are in prison for far, far less uh, striking or serious things. All kind of people that sitting in prison right now, they just affirm someone to like stay in jail for the rest of their life for weed. There are people all over no, the country. No, yeah, yeah. That's right. right. So, no, I mean, legal, legalize weed, free all those people. Right. Those I, you know, I understand that uh, freedom of speech issues, I understand why yeah. they're so important and why people rally around it because that's something that impacts us all. And you feel like if you could see it done in this particular avenue, obviously it leaves the rest of us in danger. And so it's not, the first and most heavily litigated freedom or in a, in, on a constitutional right. level. As the Supreme right. Court has really, really figured right. that one out. You have I, broader, on paper at least, and sometimes in, in principle, uh, if, it, if it makes it all the way to the court, you right. very strong. And so I'm not going to diminish yeah. the seriousness of this, right? And I obviously recognize the importance. Journalists, for me, I hate to be out here talking about the framers or anything like that, but right? But in this country's framing, it was always it was always meant to be that the media and the press is very important in terms of serving as another checks and right. balance for the government. And so, anyone can be the media. There's it, no special media it, license exactly. that you need to get these protections. Exactly. So I'm going to acknowledge that in a case like that where we want our media and press and people like this mm -hmm. to be able to uh, hold our government accountable, I do think it is a dangerous precedent to see us uh, prosecuting somebody and going after somebody so intensely that's able that was able to put out a lot of information we wouldn't have otherwise happened in the U.S. government. So that is dangerous. And I'm not going to dim diminish it. Do I have a dog? in this fight? No. Mm. Am I particularly shocked or outraged about it? No. Not, you're not surprised. No, but I do see, recognize the seriousness. you many people, yeah. Yeah. What do you make of, 
Uh, this is another case, right? Everyone say, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, uniquely insane Republican, oh, she says is. crazy things, right? No, absolutely. You agree She's with that? She's completely a big But well, why is it that on a couple pivotal issues, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and other people who are described in the media as the craziest and most far-right and even you know, borderline even fascist a, Even a broke the clock is that, right once a day. Well, it's more than once a day because they're, they were also the ones expressing opposition to perpetual weapons to Ukraine, um, which I, I, I think is also something worth scrutinizing. Uh, it's, it, positions that should be popular among mm. uh, uh, far-left Democrats on, uh, foreign, on foreign policy, uh, the, the Ukraine conflict, and, and on this, yeah. uh, given, actually, this is, a, this is a case where they should listen for once to what far-left activists want. I'm always criticizing what far-left activists want. They should listen to them on Ukraine, on Assange, on a, a few other things. And yet, the, the, most of the opposition you're getting is from, again, Republicans that are, are described in other terms in the media as crazy. And I'm not saying, once I, a day, I, twice a day, and, and, maybe three times uh, a day, I don't and, know. And I'm not saying they're not crazy. Yeah. I, uh, listen, I, I get it. I get it. I think, honestly, if, if we're really honest about it, like, uh, the left is busy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, the left is busy. We have a lot of social causes, social social issues. There are a lot of entirely, entirely present here, marginalized communities that are suffering. We have all kind of issues happening all day, every day. I just think it's just that people are not right. interested in mobilizing around one white guy uh, that is in trouble. You just, you, you get, well, you get labeled crazy by the media for doing things that the media deems crazy. And that's a, that's a finite I'm, number I'm, of I'm, issues. It's not, it, you, it can't for I think that is, policies that I think they that are indifferent to, or right there, they're not, I know many in the media are very concerned about what's going on in, in, in Assad. Well, some of them are, some in progressive media. Uh, Mehdi Hassan has been on this on MSNBC. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with him on a thing <laughs> other than this. I'm glad he's called attention to it. Um, I mentioned it on, uh, on this CNN yeah. uh, segment I did with Stelter. Uh, I, I brought it up because I want to make sure it's it's noted and and uh, and my opposition to it noted. Right. So it, it it gets talked about a little bit, but I think it should be talked about more. And it, it's just not something the media won't call you a a, a, cra a crazed fascist for uh, for for not speaking up about Assange. They'll just they'll call you a crazy fascist. I think they, they for tend to call him crazy fascist for being crazy fascist. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we're gonna. I listen. I, I don't know. I'm prepared I, I, to compromise I, I, I on a lot of things, but fascist, but I think it is authoritarian to support the continued jailing of this man. And I don't. Call you, I don't disagree. There. I know you don't disagree, but they're not going to call you an authoritarian. Yeah. For wanting to jail Julian Assange, they're just going to. But they are going to call you an authoritarian if you agree with what Trump said about the election. Um, I think I'm going to call you. Uh, I don't know if it's necessary to call you an authoritarian. I think that you, if that's what you believe in, and those are the things that you're pushing, I think you want to push our country in that kind of um, direction. I think uh, what it mostly is when it comes to the Marjories and them is that they're just, and y'all are not going to like it, but I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is a very clear and unabashed white supremacist, and she's crazy, and I will not put that aside mm -hmm. for any reason, right? Like, I can, I can completely independently recognize that I don't think that this man should be prosecuted, and this is a reflection of something negative in our government without having to align myself with such a lady, and I won't. So. Fair enough. Yes. All right, we'll be back with more Rising right after this.